Okay, so one of my coworkers, David Kestenbaum, started telling me about this thing. And really, I thought he was completely, I just, there was no way it could be true. It just seemed completely ridiculous. And then I got to say, the more he explained, the more it slowly started to seem like, okay, maybe he's right. Important fact to know about David before we go any further, he has a PhD in physics, worked at Fermilab on subatomic particles, was on the team that discovered the top quark. And this whole thing uh, between him and me began when he told me to download an app onto my iPhone. It's called um, Universe Splitter. Okay, so now I've opened it up. And there's like a gray steel, fake steel background, and it says in white type on top of it, Universe Splitter, quantum-induced universe bifurcation. What do I do now? All right, so tell me something you are having trouble making up your mind about what to do. Um, you and I are recording this on December 31st. Yeah. And I've had a week off. I grew a beard. I noticed. And, um, and I'm trying to decide if I should shave it off. Uh, and so that's something I'm trying to decide. I have an opinion on that, but... What's your opinion? <laughs> Actually, I think it looks pretty good right now. Okay, so what does this universe splitter do? It lets you do both. Like, it creates a duplicate of this universe so that in one, you get to grow the beard, and in the other, you shave it off. Wait, that's what we're going to do? Yeah. For pretend or for real? No, no, for real, maybe. This is a thing. It's called the many worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics. And there are a lot of really smart physicists who think this is probably what's happening. Okay, so how does this work? Like, what do I do next? All right, so, so there are two boxes there? Yeah. In one box, it says, in one universe, I will now. Okay, so put uh, shave off beard tonight. Hold on. Shave off beard tonight. Okay, and then the other box is labeled in the other universe, in the other one, I will now put keep beard. Keep beard. Okay, and then what's below it? And then below it, there's like a button with like an atom drawn on it. <laughs> but yeah. like an atom, like you would draw it in like a 1950s cartoon. Like Yeah, that's like the aesthetic of the whole thing. It's yeah. like an old piece of scientific equipment. So what does it do when you push the button? So if you push the button, it sends a signal to a fancy piece of scientific equipment at the University of Geneva in Switzerland. And the equipment these days can be tiny, like a little box you can hold in your hand. And it does the following. It takes a single particle of light, a photon. It sends it at a kind of mirror that can make the photon either go left or right. You can think of it that way. Like at random, it'll go either left or right? Well, according to the laws of quantum mechanics, which govern very, govern very small things, uh, it actually goes both. It's not that we don't know. It actually goes left and right at the same time. Okay. So that's super weird, right? But that is actually true and demonstrated, and, like, we've known that since the 20s. Okay. So then what happens in this device in Geneva? Yeah, so the device fires a photon, which can go left or right. And then the device looks to see, well, where did it go? And we know the particle is in both places, right? But when the machine looks, it only finds it in one place. It shows it went either left or right. Uh-huh. Which doesn't make sense, right? Because we know from the math that the particle did go to both places. So why did we only see it 
in one of those places. And what's the answer? All right, so, so one of the answers is that the photon is in both places, left and right, but just in different universes. Wait, so you're saying that when you shoot the photon into the mirror, it actually creates an entire duplicate of our universe, and in one of those universes, the photon is on the left, and the other, it is on the right. Yes. It both went left and right. Those are just in different universes. The math of it makes a lot of... The math of it is very, like, streamlined and simple. I remember, like, the day I saw it in class, and I was like, oh, my God. Maybe it's true. Yeah. So those boxes you filled out on the app? You mean the box where I typed in um, shave off beard tonight and the box where I typed in uh, keep beard? Right, right. So it'll basically choose one of those boxes if the photon goes left and the other box if the photon goes right. Okay, got it. You have to do what it says. You mean I have to keep the beard or shave off the beard like it tells me? Yeah, yeah, because when you press that button, you're going to get back one answer. But there's going to be a duplicate universe in which there is a duplicate you sitting in a duplicate studio and duplicate me, and you holding a duplicate phone in exactly the same way, the only difference is that that phone comes back with the other answer. And then that version of me will do whatever it says on the phone. We know that other guy. We trust him. He's going to go do the other. Okay, I think I understand all this. Let's go ahead. Do you want to press the button? Yeah, go ahead. Push it. (laughs) <laughs> I do feel weird about it. I feel weird. I know it's crazy. I feel weird. You literally just put your finger right up to the button and pulled it away in fear. All right, here goes. Split universe. Okay, it says input valid. Internet contacted. Geneva online. Device ready. Photon emitted. Quantum event. Your universe is just split. You're in the universe in which you should keep beard. And right now, in the other universe, the other you is being told to shave off beard tonight. So after that, I kept the beard that night. And friends at New Year's parties asked me about it. And if the universe did, in fact, split, the other version of me in the other universe must have had different conversations. Maybe, for instance, somebody gave him a great idea for a show today that in that universe, instead of airing this show, in that universe you're hearing a totally different theme. And David, just to be sure I'm understanding this, you're saying this isn't a metaphor. You're saying there are scientists who really believe that a second universe gets created. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think it's not most physicists, and there are some who think it's ridiculous, for sure, but there are some who take it very seriously. Okay, where is this alternate universe that we're creating? Yeah, I don't really even know how to think about this, but if this is true, the universe is duplicating itself all the time. It's like a fundamental thing about existence. But today on our program, in a universe that may be duplicating itself all the time, we have people who become entranced by the idea of a parallel universe out there where things are different. In one of those stories, things are better in the alternate world in one crucial way. In another story, two parallel worlds overlap. In another... A woman tries to visit. She actually tries to go to the parallel universe. From WBEC Chicago, it's This American Life. I'm Eric Glass. Stay with us. Taekwon, dreams from my father. So I was emailing with a fiction writer that we have on our show sometimes, Edgar Carrot, about today's theme, 
And he told me that his father used to spend a lot of time imagining worlds like we're talking about in today's program, parallel worlds to ours that are almost the same as our world, but not quite. And he said his father did this starting during World War II. His father was 14, living in Poland. He was Jewish when the Germans invaded and started sending Jews to the concentration camps. You know, during the the Second World War, a him and his parents, they, they hid in a, in a hole in the ground that they dug for 620 days, so he had a lot of spare time. And when he was there, he would imagine all kinds of things. He would imagine a world in which uh, the Nazis didn't exist or in which uh, he wasn't a Jew or in which people just in general didn't kill each other, you know. And, the, and this kind of thing was something that he associated with being a child. Then he kind of felt that it interested him as a child, then I, I will probably like it too. Back during the war, his father couldn't leave that hole for almost two years. A Nazi headquarters was right there, near the hole, on the same property. A Christian farmer in his 80s would bring them food and haul out buckets of urine. They couldn't even talk a lot of the time. Eckhart imagines it was like two years of meditation. My father, the way that he would talk about his time in the hole, he would say that he, he would sleep, and then he would wake up, and then he would ask his father if the war was over, and his father would say no. So he would go and sleep some more. That's the way he would tell it to me. I think it's that kind of the softcore version. And was it, like, when you say a hole, could they even stand up? No, they couldn't stand in it, and they couldn't even lie down in it. They had to sit in it. And when the Russians had liberated the, their town, and they were brought out, they had to be carried out because, you know, their muscles were so cramped that uh, by the, the time of the end of the war, they couldn't move them. Oh, my God. So basically, they're in this hole and they're sitting sitting there. Yes. And, and you know, and it's, it's like, it's very, very cold, you know. It's way uh, beyond freezing and don't have food and and you hear voices in German and you know that you know that you can easily be killed and you close your eyes and you think of another universe Eckhart has written lots of fiction that imagines parallel worlds of various kinds and when I asked him if he wanted to do something for today's show he wrote this story a true story that starts when he was a kid when I was six years old my dad worked at a pool snack bar, not far from one of Tel Aviv's beaches. Every day, at 5.30 in the morning, he'd leave home for the pool, swim two kilometers, shower in the locker room, and get to work. He wouldn't get home till nine at night. 14 hours a day, seven days a week, unloading boxes of soft drinks, pressing toasted sandwiches, brewing coffee in gleaming glasses at the pool snack bar up by the beach. Years later, Dad always said those were the best days of his life, fondly remembering how the salty air blowing in from the sea would mix in his lungs with the smell of the coffee and the imported cigarettes he used to sell at the bar. Coffee, cigarettes, and the sea were always my father's three favorite things. For me, those days were not quite as happy. When Dad came back from work, I was already in bed. And other than Saturdays, when I'd go off to visit him at the pool with my mom, I never saw him at all. Not that I was bitter about this. 
six-year-old children can't really imagine a different world for themselves, one where their father had more time for them. They accept reality as it is. And yet, I missed him dearly. Seeing this, my mother suggested I go with him every morning to the pool, have a swim together, and take a cab to school from there. I don't remember anything of those morning swims, but the car rides with Dad are crystal clear. It's still dark as we sit in our silver Peugeot 504, the windows roll down, Dad smoking Kent 100s and describing parallel universes that exist at this very moment in other dimensions. Universes where everything is precisely identical to ours. Same road, same traffic light, same cigarette in the corner of Dad's mouse, all except for one tiny difference. And this difference, Dad would change every morning, changing the one detail in the parallel universe that differed from ours. Here we are, in the parallel universe, waiting at the exact same intersection for the light to change. Only in this universe, instead of a silver Peugeot, we are riding a dragon. And here's another one, where under my faded sweatpants hide gills which allow me to breathe underwater like a fish. When I was nine, my father got a new job. He no longer had to get up so early in the morning. And in the evenings, we'd all have a dinner together and watch the nightly news. I was 22 by the time I moved out of my parents' house, but I still made sure to visit them at least twice a week. And on Saturdays, I'd swim with Dad at the pool where he once worked. When I was 43, my father was diagnosed with cancer. It was tongue cancer, the result of 50 years of smoking. By the time the doctors caught on, it was at an advanced stage, and though we never spoke a word about it, it was obvious to us both that soon he was going to die. On Mondays, I take him in for his physical therapy, and as we sat in the waiting room to see the physical therapist with the British accent, my father sometimes still talked about parallel universes where everything was exactly the same as ours, save for one difference. Say, that dogs could speak, or that people could read minds, or that the sky was purple. And when the milk-white clouds floated across it, they looked tasty enough to eat. At the end of every session, the physical therapist would show me how to hold my father's arm when we walked together, and what I should do in case he lost his balance. On our way home, as we approached the corner of King Solomon and Arlozorov, Dad would always stop. Do you smell that? He'd say, and point to the new cafe at the corner. Just by the smell of it, I can tell you that's the best coffee in town. At this stage of his illness, the tongue cancer was so advanced my father could no longer eat or drink. Instead, he got all his food and liquids through a clear plastic tube straight to his stomach. On one of these Mondays, after physical therapy, while walking by the corner cafe on King Solomon and Arlozorov, my father, instead of just pausing to praise the place as usual, suggested we actually go in for a cup of coffee. Dad, I said after a moment's hesitation, 
You can't drink anything. The tumor is blocking your esophagus. I know, he said and patted me on the back. But you can. We sat at the corner table on the sidewalk. I ordered a latte and a glass of water from the pretty waitress. And when she asked my father what he'd like, he asked for a double espresso. I stared at him, confused, and he smiled and shrugged. The waitress noticed Dad's guilty smile and gave me a questioning look. Not knowing what to say, I ordered an oatmeal cookie. Until the coffee arrived, we sat in silence. I wanted to ask my father why he'd ordered the coffee at all and if it had anything to do with the waitress being pretty. But I said nothing. Dad pulled the cigarette pack out of his shirt pocket and the lighter he had stored in his glasses case and set them both down on the table. We waited. A few minutes later, the waitress returned with our order. She placed it on the table, a latte, a glass of water and a cookie in front of me and a double espresso in front of Dad. Aromatic steam rose from my coffee. I wanted to drink it, but doing that in Dad's face seemed unfair, so I just kept staring at it. When out of the corner of my eye, I saw my father quickly snatch the double espresso off the table and gulp it down in one sip. It was impossible. I knew it was impossible. After all, I was there in the room when the oncologist showed me and my mother the x-ray with the tumor resting above the blocked esophagus like a scoop of vanilla ice cream on a waffle cone. My father, she said then, could never drink again. And here we were, sitting together on a pleasant summer day at this hipster cafe, me still staring at my steaming cup of coffee and him, by my side, smiling after killing off his double espresso. And for a moment there, I thought maybe we were in a parallel universe. Maybe he told me enough stories ever since I was a little boy to tear open a hole in the aching heart of our universe through which we were sucked into a parallel one, identical to our own in every way, save for one exception. In this universe, my dad could drink and eat as much as he liked, and he was not about to die in just a few months. The piping hot coffee slid down my father's windpipe and into his lungs. When it got there, Dad started to choke. He stood up and grabbed his throat with both hands. The wet, wheezing noises he made were horrific, the sound of a man whose lungs are flooded with hot coffee. A bespectacled man from the table next to us leapt up and asked my father if he needed any help. I just sat there, paralyzed. The parallel universe I'd shared with my father moments ago had vanished, dropping me back into a far worse universe. A few more seconds of gargling followed, after which Dad leaned over and coughed up, evacuating all the fine Italian espressos that had filled his lungs. When he was done, he sat up in his chair as if nothing had happened, inches away from the puddle of coffee and phlegm, and lit himself a cigarette. People at the tables around us kept staring at him. What did I tell you? He smiled at me and exhaled smoke from his nostrils. The best coffee in town. Mm-hmm.
Shankar Carrot. He's the author of many books. He writes about his dad and the rest of his family and stories a lot like this one, emotional fables that happen to be true, in his book, The Seven Good Years. Act two, sorry, not sorry. So it's kind of grim to say this, but the moon landing, that story of American triumph, it could have gone another way. In some other storyline from the multiverse, Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin, they land on the moon, they walk around, it's great. But then there's a problem, and they cannot take off to come home. NASA thought this was the most dangerous moment of the mission, the most likely spot it could fail. One of President Richard Nixon's speechwriters, William Sapphire, actually prepared a statement to be read in case that was the way the story went. At the top of the page, in all caps, it read, In the event of moon disaster, the first line of the speech, Fate has ordained that the men who went to the moon to explore in peace will stay on the moon to rest in peace. Pretty good. David Kestenbaum has this next story about another presidential speech, never delivered, that also feels like it slipped into our world from a parallel universe. You can find this speech framed hanging in the guest bathroom of home in California. Here's David. The speech was to be read on the night of August 17th, 1998. It's in the house of Bob Schramm because he wrote it. Schramm was a longtime Democratic political strategist, speechwriter, and getter-outer of tight spots. Are you, are you personally good at apologizing? Oh, I've had to apologize so many times for so many things, sure. What's the most recent thing you apologized for? Uh, having a fight with my wife about what we were giving various people as Christmas gifts. This story is about an apology he wrote for a much bigger audience. That August, 1998, Shrum was on vacation in Idaho, staying with some friends. And the phone rang. Well, I didn't have a cell phone then, so somehow or other, oh, my office called me and said Mark was trying to reach me. Mark is Mark Penn, who at the time was conducting polls and advising the president of the United States, who at the time was Bill Clinton, who at the time was in a lot of hot water. Impeachment might very well be uh, an option. Tampering with witnesses, obstruction of justice are very, very serious charges. A moment when one political party said there were very valid high crimes and misdemeanors, and the other party said, that's ridiculous political posturing. Anyway, there had been stories in the press for months at this point that Clinton might have had an affair with an intern, Monica Lewinsky. Clinton denied it, though, under oath in a civil case, and famously, on television. But I want to say one thing to the American people. I want you to listen to me. I'm going to say this again. I did not have sexual relations with that woman, Miss Lewinsky. But there was the dress with Clinton's DNA on it and recorded phone calls between Monica Lewinsky and a coworker talking about the affair. At the time Bob Shrum got the call, President Clinton was finally going to have to testify before independent counsel Ken Starr's grand jury. He would have to own up to the affair. And then afterwards, say something to the nation. But what? That was what the phone call was about. Shrum called Mark Penn back, who asked if he would take a shot at writing a speech for the president to be delivered on TV just after he gave his grand jury testimony. It would be the president's chance to frame the whole thing, maybe finally put it away, and prevent the Republicans from starting impeachment proceedings. The country would be watching. Bob Shrum said okay. He hung up the phone and told his wife and the couple they were staying with on vacation what the assignment was. One of the people there said, this better be good. Meaning you better do a good job. Yes. Yeah. 
so I sat at the dining room table, uh, uh, and I, I wrote in longhand on a yellow pad, which is how I've always written. I drafted it. What he wrote was a straight-up, direct apology. Uh, do you have it there with you? I, I, it's on, it's on, well, actually, I can go get it. You want to hold on for a second? Shrum went to go get it from where it was hanging, in what he calls the guest powder room. And to be clear, there's other political memorabilia in there. It's a speech he's proud of. Can you read the speech for me? Yeah, it's not very long, so I will. My fellow Americans, no one who is not in my position can understand fully the remorse I feel today. Since I was very young, I have had a profound reverence for this office I hold. I've been honored that you, the people, have entrusted it to me. I am proud of what we have accomplished together. But in this case, I have fallen short of what you should expect from a president. I have failed my own religious faith and values. I have let too many people down. I take full responsibility for my actions, for hurting my wife and daughter, for hurting Monica Lewinsky and her family, for hurting friends and staff, and for hurting the country I love. None of this ever should have happened. Then he has Clinton apologizing for misleading people about the affair. And this is how it ends. Finally, I also want to apologize to all of you, my fellow citizens. I hope that you can find it in your heart to accept my apology. I pledge to you that I will make every effort of mind and spirit to earn your confidence again, to be worthy of this office, and to finish the work on which we have made such remarkable progress in the past six years. God bless you, and good night. How's it feel reading that? I, you know, I, I mean, I remember writing it. I thought it was the right thing for him to say. And when I hear it now, I still think it's the right thing for him to say. It's notable that Schramm had the president apologizing to Monica Lewinsky and her family. At the time, Charles Rangel, the Democratic congressman from New York, called her, quote, a young tramp. She was the subject of jokes on late-night television. Bill Maher said, I think Monica Lewinsky is the one who should apologize to America. No one seemed to be thinking about her as a person whose life was now a wreck. Shrum was. Well, I mean, she was a, an intern, a kid in the White House, uh, and I thought that uh, that made every bit of sense in the world. Shrum sent the speech into the White House, and then the day arrived. Clinton gave his grand jury testimony, which was not broadcast. And that evening, the president went on TV to give his speech. Shrum sat down with the rest of the country to watch it. We were just sitting around in the living room watching it on television. And at that point, are you thinking, maybe he's going to read my speech? Sure. I thought he, I thought he might very well. Uh, Bill Clinton, who I worked with on like State of the Union messages, never exactly reads what you send him. So I didn't anticipate that it would be necessarily word for word what I had sent, but I thought it might be pretty close to it. Uh, it was almost diametrically the opposite. Good evening. This afternoon in this room, from this chair, I testified before the Office of Independent Counsel and the Grand Jury. I answered their questions truthfully, including questions about my private life, questions no American citizen would ever want to answer. I not only remember hearing the first words, but I remember 
the look on his face. Uh, he was really, really angry. It's the private Bill Clinton who could get angry, and I have seen him angry, but I don't think the country had seen him angry very often. As you know, in a deposition in January, I was asked questions about my relationship with Monica Lewinsky. While my answers were legally accurate, I did not volunteer information. Indeed, I did have a relationship with Ms. Lewinsky that was not appropriate. In fact, it was wrong. It constituted a critical lapse in judgment and a personal failure on my part for which I am solely and completely responsible. There are moments of apology in there and would feel like honest reflection, like when he straight up admits the reasons he had been so evasive until then. I can only tell you I was motivated by many factors. First, by a desire to protect myself from the embarrassment of my own conduct. But the overall message is not, I'm sorry. I screwed up, he seems to be saying. But the real problem is the fact that I'm having to talk about this at all. It's a private family matter. It's nobody's business but ours. Even presidents have private lives. He closes not by asking for forgiveness, as Trump had advised, but by asking people to stop gawking. And so tonight, I ask you to turn away from the spectacle of the past seven months, to repair the fabric of our national discourse, and to return our attention to all the challenges and all the promise of the next American century. Thank you for watching, and good night. What do you think would have happened if he'd, instead that night, he'd taken out your speech and read it? I think it would have lessened the chances that he would have been impeached. Really? I don't know that it would have prevented the impeachment, but I think it would have lessened the chances. It's possible his speech gets you to the same ending, just with a slightly different plot. After all, there was a lot of momentum in Congress toward impeachment. But it's nice to contemplate a world where the leader of your country can stand up and acknowledge having made a mistake can acknowledge reality. An apology really is about the truth, laying it out so we can all live in the same world together. It's impossible to imagine that happening now. Clinton seemed closer to it at that moment, but he still couldn't do it. I I wonder of all the possible universes, in how many of them does Clinton say, I'm sorry, you know, not I'm sorry for what happened or I'm sorry if people feel, you know, but, but really like, I'm sorry. There may be a universe in which he did that. I'm just not aware of it because I don't live in it. (laughs) Yeah, that's not the one we live in. You want to know what I think? I think it's possible there is no universe in which President Clinton reads Bob Trump's speech. Listening to the speech Clinton did give, I kind of think he gives it in every possible universe. It was exactly how he felt. And the the speech that you wrote, while great, was not at all how he was feeling at that moment. I, I obviously the speech that I that, that I drafted did not reflect how he felt coming out of the grand jury. In that sense, can you fault him? I I just think it. You want to do what fits the moment, I mean, and you want to be true to yourself. The problem was that I think he was true to the angry guy who had just come out of the room. You know, he he was maybe not true to the person he was the next day. There are the yous in all the parallel worlds, but also the you on Thursday and the one on Friday. The one who's had some time to think and some sleep and a sandwich. For sure, 
Those are different people. David Kestenbaum. In some other universe, he stayed a physicist for all of his life. In this one, he is the executive editor of our program. Bill Clinton, by the way, later wrote about this address to the nation that night in his biography. He does not mention Trump's draft of the speech. But he does say that most of his advisors had counseled him to simply admit that he had made an awful mistake, not to go out swinging. He did anyway, of course. Weeks after that speech, he backtracked in front of a smaller audience at a prayer breakfast with religious leaders. He took a different tone there. He said, I agree with those who have said that in my first statement after I testified, I was not contrite enough. It was much closer to what Trump had written. It included an apology to Monica Lewinsky and her family. Coming up, worry that you're living in a parallel universe where some very basic facts about your own life have been altered. That's in a minute from Chicago Public Radio when our program continues. This is American Life. Myra Glass. Today's program, Gardens of Branching Paths, stories of parallel worlds and people who get fixated on the way things could be in those other worlds. In the first half of today's show, uh, we had people imagining other better worlds. In this half, we have people pondering the alternate worlds that are right here around us all the time in this world. We've arrived at Act 3 of our show, Act 3, Scar-Crossed Brothers. So if you think about it, being an identical twin is kind of a parallel world situation. You know, you have this other version of yourself stuck in the same world as you, stuck in the same house as you. You see somebody who's just like you, running around, doing things that you might not do. Dana Chivas has this uh, next story about a mother, her twins, and a 48-year-old mystery. Annette Sklar had a lot going on in the winter of 72. In January, she delivered twin boys. Jason first, followed by Randy five minutes later. Weighing five pounds, two ounces, Randy had to spend the first days of life in an incubator. They lived in suburban St. Louis. Annette's husband, Dick, had a job at a paper company called Tension Envelope. He worked long hours and traveled a lot. Annette was often at home alone, caring for two infants, feeding them, changing diapers, and making sure she didn't lose track of which one was which, because they looked exactly alike. Were you always scared that you might mix them up? Like, from the day they were born, was that a a real fear? I tried to be really careful about knowing who either had what outfit they were on. I knew I was really careful about it. So usually we had outfits. We had outfits in different colors. Blue, Blue Jay, and Red, Randy, Red. And then I didn't think about it too much once I knew it was. Okay. (laughs) That's how we did it. That's a good system. I mean, I think I did feed them twice, and one of them didn't feed the other one. That happens sometimes. (laughs) You did that. You did that. One of them was eating, the other one was crying a lot. And I go, why is he crying so much? (laughs) She even had a backup, a creative redundancy she built into the safety plan for their identities. And that was diaper pins. She used blue diaper pins for Jason and yellow ones for Randy. Everything went smoothly for a while. And then at six weeks, they had their first checkup. Annette dressed them in the same outfit, a fancy number their aunt in Los Angeles had sent them. But underneath the clothes, the diaper pin system was up and running. At the doctor's office, a nurse took the babies out of the room. Annette can't really remember why. Maybe she needed to weigh them. And a few minutes later, the nurse came back in with the boys. 
And she goes, oh, we have such a great surprise for you now. We have Pampers. And we're just using it for the first time. So instead of using your diapers, we used your Pampers. Oh, no. And then they gave me a little, all four of their pins. The nurse had changed the babies out of their cloth diapers and put them into disposable ones, foiling the system entirely. She handed Annette a little bag with the diaper pins in it. The boys were completely indistinguishable. I was very upset. So they go, oh, you're going to be fine. You're fine. Of course, they go, you're fine. And we got in the car, and I was so upset the whole way home. When she got home, Annette put the babies on the couch and stared at them. At six weeks old, they didn't have distinct personalities yet. They weighed the same amount. They had the same bald heads. No birthmarks. And I'm not kidding you. They looked exactly like And so I was thinking I was a really terrible mother, that how can I really look at this and not see my own children and not know which ones they are? You know, she called me in a panic, and um, she just said, I I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't know which one's which. I don't know what to do. This is Annette's best friend, Linda Wallace. Aunt Linda, as Jason and Randy know her. She lived in the same subdivision. Did you go over there to try to help her? Do you no, I didn't, you because didn't. I, if she couldn't tell them apart. How would I be able to tell them apart? Right. I mean, I didn't. I couldn't tell them apart. You know, they. She had the pins. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> were you nervous to tell to tell Dick? Were you nervous to tell yes. your husband? You were. Yes, I was really nervous. So when he came home, when he came home and he they saw them and they were in their crib. And so finally I had to tell him, I go, I have to tell you what happened. And I told him. And he goes, really? He goes, oh, we'll figure it out. Let's see. And then we were both looking at both of them right next to each other. And then, of course, they had the pampers on and nothing. And he's going, I don't know. What do you think it is? I go, I don't know. <laughs> Annette was faced with a decision. She had to choose which baby was Jason and which one was Randy. She had nothing to go on but a maternal feeling. So she chose. Dick agreed with her. I really always felt like I had the right person in my heart. I just said, it is, and I'm not going to think about it anymore, and this is my life. We know who they are, and that it is who they are, and we're not going to talk about it anymore. Aunt Linda? Not so convinced. Do you think she got it right? Do you think Annette got it know. right? You don't I mean, know. I don't think she knows. She says she did. But yeah. how does she know? I mean, there's no way. They, they were so, they looked so much alike. And so I'm not sure. Jason and Randy are 48 years old now. They're comedians. They work together. They've done cameos on different TV shows, like Curb Your Enthusiasm and Better Call Saul. And they still look exactly the same. Randy, can you describe what Jason looks like? He's very good looking. Um, Jason, he is very Semitic looking. He's got glasses. Uh, He's about five foot eight and a half. That's generous. Somewhat athletic looking. Less generous. They found out about their potentially swapped identities when they were about 12 years old by accident. They were spending a summer weekend at the world-famous Lake of the Ozarks in central Missouri with their mom and Aunt Linda and her two sons. The boys were playing while Annette and Aunt Linda talked amongst themselves. The story of the calamitous doctor's visit came up. 
And unbeknownst to them, Jason and Randy were in earshot, and they overheard the whole thing. And we were just, we hated the story. This is Jason. He sounds remarkably like Randy. We we were livid that this could have happened, and also that she was sharing it in sort of an offhand kind of joking way. And Linda Wallace, who is a funny woman, was making it funnier, and they were laughing about it. And we're like, we were just very embarrassed by it and upset by it. Like, oh my God, this is an insane thing to hear. Because we may not be who we are. What pissed you off about it? What was so upsetting about it? I think that it just was, we were just sensitive, I think, to being confused. And again, it was this narrative that kind of went through our lives as we wanted to be individuals and we wanted to be seen as individuals. And then here's this thing that happened where we could be so easily confused. For identical twins, two people who are constantly being mistaken for one another, who try really hard to make it clear that they're unique individuals, this was a big deal. Randy was the most upset. He goes, why can't you go to the, to the policeman? I think Randy really wanted me to go there. You were talking all the way to the car. Not that an actual crime had been committed, just a crime against their dignity. But for some reason, Randy figured the police were the ones who could sort it out. But Annette did not go to the police, and the name confusion did not get sorted out. It remained a mystery in Jason and Randy's lives. A couple times that it was brought up throughout their years, if somebody said something about it, they would go, I don't want to hear about it. Don't bring it up again. Wow. I had because, no idea it was that that um, painful for them. I mean, it was, a, it was a joke between Annette and I, but I'm not sure it was a joke between all of us because they were very sensitive about it. Just the simple fact of the matter that for countless times in our lives, someone has said to me, Jason, and I'm like, nope, I'm Randy. Right. You know, like that that's happened so many times in my life. If that's not true, there is going to go back to every single one of those people and apologize. apologize. (laughs) No, but there's there's a notion that like you've been living a little bit of a lie. It's a tiny lie, but it's not your lie. It's not your lie and it's not your fault. But still, that is that's unsettling in a weird way to me. That's just weird that for all this time I had it wrong. If they were switched then they have to reimagine something that's so foundational nobody ever thinks about it. Their birth. Who's older? Who is in the incubator? Like Randy says, it's weird. It doesn't really make a difference. But also, somehow it does. And not knowing what the truth is, that's even more unnerving. It turns out there was one way to figure it out. Sometime around the age of 40, Randy can't remember exactly when, the topic of their potentially swapped identities came up. And they were like, why haven't we figured this out yet? They're grown-ass adults. They should know who they actually were. And also, they were working as comedians at that point, and they thought it might be good material. Which, we'll see. Randy thought maybe the hospital where they were born would have a copy of their baby fingerprints. They could get those and compare them to their adult fingerprints. He wasn't wrong about the science part of that. Identical twins have nearly the same DNA, so their fingerprint patterns are very similar, closer than anyone else's. As you probably know, fingerprints are made up of lines, and some of those lines have tiny variations in them, like forks or loops. And those markings are different between identical twins. For those of you still listening, 
The reason for that is that the markings develop based on the conditions in the womb, like pressure, which is different depending on where the baby is in the womb. So Randy called the hospital where they were born to see if they still had a copy of their fingerprints. The hospital told them that they throw birth records out after 30 years. They were old and out of luck. Until I was back home last summer with my family. This is Randy. And I was digging through, just looking at stuff. In St. Louis. In St. Louis. I was back in our childhood home that we had lived in since we were four years old. And I found from the hospital our footprints. I, I couldn't believe it. They were in a book inside chest. of the next to your bed next right? to my bed there was like a nightstand thing that was like a chest that you could open up and it was just in the bottom of that i couldn't believe it and i'd never seen it there before and i thought okay this is we could find out it became more real real and the possibility and was rekindled if they could find someone to compare their adult footprints to their baby footprints maybe they could put this mystery to bed once and for all as luck would have it, there was just such a person in Buena Park, California, about 25 miles from Los Angeles, where Jason and Randy now live. A forensic identification specialist by the name of Kurt Kuhn. But Kurt said there was no way he could use a baby footprint from a hospital. Those aren't made for identification purposes. They're made because baby feet are freaking cute. They're mementos, and they usually don't have much detail. In June, Jason sent Kurt the footprints anyway, just to check. And when Kurt saw them, he confirmed that they were mostly just unusable smudges of ink. But, miraculously, there was a half-inch spot on the ball of the left Jason foot that had nice, clear lines. He shouldn't have any problem making the identification. He just needed Jason and Randy's adult feet. Faced with the imminent revelation of their true identities, Jason and Randy were forced to think through what they would actually do if they'd been switched as babies, which, let's be honest, is not a long list of considerations. Do you think you'd swap names? Or would we legally change our names right, to each other's names? If you, are, if you are swapped, then you're kind of like committing fraud all the time right now. I guess, Unintentionally. Yeah. Unintentional fraud. Yeah, you're, well, I'm, I would be using his social security number. Right. You know, how does that affect everything we do? I wonder if it does. I mean, maybe it only matters if, like, one of you commits murder barefoot and then runs through wet cement or something. Right. Maybe it's practically it doesn't actually matter. Now is out. We can't do we that. We can't do that now. <laughs> Thanks a lot. Maybe it doesn't matter. I'm probably right about that. Except there's one person who Jason was legitimately worried about. Their mom, Annette, who they're very close with. Their father died in 2009. Annette's had two strokes in recent years. They're protective of her. What if she got it wrong all those years ago? I would feel bad for our mom. Yeah, say more about that. I would feel like maybe she would be embarrassed or maybe she would feel like she should have spoken up and maybe found out a way in that moment to get our footprints and just dispel it and figure it out. Annette, however, was not concerned. I just have a feeling. That's all my feeling, my mm -hmm. definite feeling that I know who's who. I know Will who it, you are. I'm the mother. I know. What if it is, it's different? You want me to change my name? What, what if I became Jason and Jason became me? Then you have to we, have different girlfriends. <laughs> <laughs> me wives? Mom. <laughs> 
few days before Thanksgiving, I flew to L.A. and met Randy, Jason, and Annette at Randy's house, where Annette was spending the holiday. We left her at home with her grandchildren and headed down the five towards Buena Park and hopefully resolution. Randy said he was feeling remarkably zen. But Jason? I feel more nervous today than, than ever before about this. Like, I think when we got into this, I was like, oh, this is, you know, going to be so interesting and fascinating, but I really want my mom to be right. Like, I want to be me. I don't know. I just woke up this morning saying, God, I hope my mom was right. We turned off the highway, drove through the gates of Kurt's subdivision, and pulled up to a house with a Winnebago out front. The garage door was halfway down, and behind it we could see a pair of white legs that ended in a sock tan and flip-flops. Kurt? The garage door lifted to reveal Kurt. What's up? A tall man with a full mustache and a voice like a cartoon bear. And you're not coming in through the garage. Get on the front porch. Let me get rid of the trash I'm taking. All right. Done. Done and done We stepped into Kurt's living room, met his wife and granddaughter. We made an impressive amount of small talk about Thanksgiving, Winnebago's, hunting. Well, have you ever bitten into birdshot while eating? I have, I have actually. No. So, <laughs> Kurt spent 25 and a half years working as a forensic identification specialist for the Beverly Hills and Los Angeles police departments. There it is right there. He shows us Jason and Randy's baby footprints. He'd had them locked in his safe for five months. Take those. Oh, they're so cute. It's time to take their adult footprints. Sit down, get rid of a left shoe and sock. Randy goes first. He puts his naked foot up on Kurt's knee. Kurt takes a special ink pad and presses it against his foot. Then he repeats the process with Jason. And that's it. We send them out the door to walk around the neighborhood. While Kurt figures out who is actually Jason and who is actually Randy. We go upstairs to his office where he scans the footprints and then pulls them up on his computer screen. He enlarges the baby one on screen, because it's teeny, and stares at the lines, comparing it to the adult footprint. After just 20 minutes, he's done. I text Jason and tell him to come back to the house. Okay, here we go. Welcome back. Thank you. Kurt sits them back down on the couch and proceeds with a line of questioning I had not anticipated. Okay, well, my first question is, how many other babies were in the doctor's office that day? I have no idea. Kurt, who's one of the nicest guys you'll ever meet, by the way, is screwing with them. Okay, let's hear it. Don't keep us in suspense. So he tells them. Wow. Whoa, my God. Oh, my God. Thanks, Kurt. Thank you. We'll be in touch soon, okay? Oh, my God. I'll turn it some No. I'm not going to tell you the results yet. On the drive back to Randy's house, their family calls. First, Randy's wife, Amy, who asks him, not how are you, but who are you? Hey. Who are you? Then Randy's daughter, Georgia, calls with her sister and Jason's kids in the background. Are you you? I'm going to reveal it when I get home. Okay, wait. Can we go to the mall? Can we go to the mall, please? We're home. Come on down. Come on in. We walk back into the kitchen we left a few hours before. Annette is there with her four grandchildren. Jason and Randy's aunt and uncle are there too, and an English bulldog named Roman. We gather around the kitchen island, 
Jason's five-year-old daughter, Noah, clings to him. Everyone's excited, a little nervous. First of all, okay, so first of all, how's everyone feeling? Good, go, go, just get the We got the results, and we found out that I am me and Uncle Jason is Uncle Jason. I'm so glad. You actually saw it for sure, which is great. You didn't have to think about it, but that's what I thought in my heart. I felt like you were. Doesn't that make you feel like, what does it make you feel like that you got it? Just in my heart, it felt like that's who you were. I just, but you're a mother. And now I'm excited. (laughs) I'm happy. I'm excited. I love that you're so happy. So uh, we went down and he did our footprint. I know. Look, she's really so happy. She's like legitimately happy. Look at the smile on mom's face. She's so happy. (laughs) A day later, Randy got Aunt Linda on the phone and told her the good news. Yahoo! Yahoo. So that means that mom and dad were right. Uh, well, they had 50-50 chance. That's right. <laughs> Thank you, Aunt Linda. I love you. <laughs> I love you, too. So all is well in the Sklar family. Jason is still older than Randy by five minutes. Randy is still the one who spent time in an incubator. They haven't been committing unintentional fraud. They don't have to change their social security numbers. The world Annette said they were living in was indeed the world they were in all along. Dana Chivas is one of the producers of our show. Talk four. If I lived here, I'd be home now. So our last story today is about somebody who tries to visit a parallel world, one that she almost lived in herself. Diane Wu explains. The universe Emily ended up in was like a postcard for old-timey America. Ten acres in Vermont with five big brothers and sisters eating candy out of glass jars at the family general store. Yeah, we just lived in this big house, and my parents were really strict. Mm-hmm. <laughs> my parents are so strict. That I always, like, they always reminded me of the Von Trapp family, even though that's, like, really extreme. Mm-hmm. <laughs> a lot of rules, it, it was huh? very, It was a lot of rules. It was very much do as I say. She almost lived a totally different life. Emily was adopted from South Korea when she was a baby. She's 40 now. And as a kid, she rarely thought about the world she came from, what her life would have been like there. It was the 80s. That kind of thing wasn't especially encouraged. Her family raised her not to ask many questions about her past. But there was one thing she really wanted to know about it. I mean, mostly growing up, I just really wondered what my birth mother looked like. Mm-hmm. Um, that was usually the question that always came to my mind. Her adoptive parents didn't look like her. They were white, as was most everybody else in town. So it was hard for her to picture her birth mother's face. But there was no one to ask. A couple decades later, Emily became a mother herself and suddenly felt connected to and curious about her birth mother again. She started researching how to contact her and, two long years later, finally got in touch. Then she decided to go on a trip to South Korea to meet her birth mother, a trip that would allow her to tunnel between the universe that was into the universe that might have been. She recorded parts of it for a podcast called Motherhood Sessions. All of Emily's emotions about the trip hit her on the way to the airport in New York, when suddenly she found herself sobbing while talking to the cab driver. Did you have any family in Korea? I'm meeting, I'm meeting my birth mother for the first time. That's his exciting for you. Who told about your birth, uh, birth mother? I searched for her through the adoption agency. Mm-hmm. It took two years. Mm-hmm. Two years of searching. 
Oh, that's good. That's good. And what about your dad? I don't know. You don't know? I don't know. Okay, don't worry about that anything. It should be better everything. And it's a very blessing for you. You you going to meet your mother. I know. I I know your feeling. Because you spend your whole life without your mom. <laughs> I know you spend your whole life you without your mom. You need your mom on when you are a child like your your babies, you know? Yeah. Going on the plane to for me it was kind of thinking about the last time I took that flight was when I was a baby. And touching down you know, I remember thinking that the last time I was here was when I was five months old. She had a day to settle in before she met her birth mother. It was the first time she'd ever been to Asia. And wandering around Seoul, it was so easy to imagine the other versions of her life all around her. I go in stores or in restaurants and, you know, I think, oh, could I be that woman behind the counter working there um, when I'd see a mom with her little girl? I'd be like, oh, well, is that what it would have been like, you know, to, to walk down the street holding my, my mom's hand? On her second day in Korea, Emily carefully did her hair and makeup and headed to the adoption agency to meet her birth mother. Their reunion happened in a worn-down meeting room in front of a bulletin board pinned with Christmas cards. I see this sh short Korean woman um, walk in the door and, you know, we hug and, and I cry a lot. <laughs> and she says, which means I'm sorry. It's the very first thing her birth mother says to her. And I say, Kanchanayo, which means it's okay. So it's like looking in a mirror. <laughs> That's a social worker in the room translating for them. Emily's birth mother told her her story. She'd gotten pregnant as a teenager, which was completely shunned. There was no place in society for teenage single mothers. A few days after Emily was born, a relative came by with a police officer and social worker, and they took Emily away. A week later, Emily's birth mother went to the police station, desperate to get her baby back. They told her it was too late. She called the adoption agency several times over the years to check in on her daughter, learned she'd been adopted by an American family. I talked with her on the phone, and when I asked her if she'd ever imagined the world where she did manage to get Emily back, she told me, I haven't really had those thoughts, but I always dreamt about her. Seeing her birth mother's face, meeting her whole extended family later on that trip, it had a profound impact on Emily. I heard her talk about it on that podcast, Motherhood Sessions. And I was surprised and moved to hear her say that being in the same room with her birth family. For the first time, I felt pretty. <laughs> you know, because like growing up, you know, you, your parents always tell you that you're pretty or like, you know, whatever. But I never really believed it. 
Um, but like being around this family and we all look alike, you know, I felt, I felt like I was beautiful. And I had never felt it that deeply before. What do you think is behind that feeling? Because, you know, after growing up, living a lifetime of feeling like you don't fit in and, you know, wondering why maybe certain guys don't like you or, you know, why you don't, you know, maybe you're not like the most popular person in school. You know, for the first time in my life, I felt like I made sense. Like, I felt like my being made sense. I felt like my face made sense. Emily stayed with her birth family for three days in a town called Dongduchan, in a little house by the railroad tracks. There were ceramic pots of kimchi in the yard, a flat-screen TV in the living room that was always playing Korean variety shows and soap operas. Lots of visitors came by to welcome Emily. It felt warm, familiar. On the first night, Emily was getting ready for bed, and her birth mother came in and presented her with four boxes containing gold jewelry for Emily, her kids, and her husband. Emily accepted them hesitantly. Then, using a translation app, her birth mother told her, She said, Korean mothers sleep with their children. (laughs) And I'm like, oh God, here we go. Emily had heard about this, that it's not unusual for Korean parents to sleep in the same room as their kids, even when they're adults. In this room, there was only one bed. She tried to explain to her birth mother, sorry, but I prefer to sleep alone. It wasn't clicking. Emily ended up calling an interpreter she'd hired who had already gone home for the day. And so I called her and asked her to explain, (laughs) you know, Mm -hmm. that I I couldn't do it. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, and she she did. um, But you could see that, you know, my birth mother was pissed (laughs) and not really happy about it. Um, She had missed years and years of of my life. I can understand, you know, why she'd want to you know, sleep in the same room with me. Mm -hmm. But I just couldn't do it. A lot of the time with her birth mother was like this. As a visitor, it was impossible to fit in completely. She was a stranger and family all at the same time. Dropping into a place that really felt like it could be home. But it wasn't. Diane Wu is our show's managing editor. That podcast, uh, Motherhood Sessions, where we first heard Emily's story, it's a show about women and moms in moments of crisis and change. It starts its second season this week. In my alternate universe Things only get better, not worse There's not a cloud in the Our program was produced today by our executive editor, David Kastenbaum. People who made today's show includes Elna Baker, Susan Burton, Ben Calhoun, Dana Chivas, Sean Cole, Neil Drumming, Nora Gill, Damian Graves, Seth Lynn, Jessica Lassenhop, Lena Matsitsi, Joe Nelson, Catherine Raimondo, Nadia Raymond, Robin Semyon, Lily Sullivan, Christopher Sotala, Matt Tierney, and Julie Whitaker. Our managing editor is Diane Wu. Special thanks today to Sean Carroll, the physicist at Caltech, who told David about the universe splitter app in the first place. His book about parallel universes created by quantum physics is called Something Deeply Hidden. 
Thanks also today to Peter Bresnan, Alexandra Sachs, Subi Craig, Christine Lee, Kim Park Nelson, Andrew Parsons, Eric Daniels, Joe McGee, Nazanin Rafsanjani, Devin Taylor, Emma Munger, and Molly Donahue. Our website, thisamericanlife.org. This American Life is delivered to public radio stations by PRX, the public radio exchange. Special thanks, as always, to our program's co-founder, Mr. Tori Malatia. You know, he put a low jack on his car, but, like, not a good one. When his car got stolen, he starts tracking it, and it shows his car, but... It actually goes left and right at the same time. Or, or, everyone, alternative universe photon firing, here we go. Tori Malatia, he is so obsessed with the polls for the Democratic primary, but, you know, I don't think he really understands how to read them. He was explaining to me the other day that this poll of the electorate in New Hampshire... It actually goes left and right at the same time. I'm Ira Glass. Back next week with more stories of this American life. In my alternate universe.